This program is part of the Cosmic Potato Podcast Network. For more shows like this, visit our website at CosmicPotato.com. Fifty years ago, the world was introduced to the phenomenon that was Star Trek. Popular culture was changed forever, and eventually it became six television series and 13 motion pictures. People from all walks of life have been affected by it. Their lives have been affected by the lessons and the philosophies that they took away from it. This is the story of those fans. Interviews with individuals who love Star Trek and believe that their lives are better because of it. This is their prime direction. Hey everybody and welcome to the Prime Direction, the Star Trek Fandom Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm extremely honored to introduce my guest for this episode. Uh, Many of us that are hardcore Star Trek fans know that when you can't get enough Trek on TV or in the theaters, you turn to the bookstore. And uh, Paramount has had a license with Simon & Schuster for decades to publish novels that are based on all five of the series. And if you go to your local bookstore and you peruse the titles in the Star Trek section... There's a few names that will pop up over and over again, and one of those names is Michael Jan Friedman. He's the author of at least 39 Star Trek novels, as well as tie-in novels based on other series such as Star Wars, Alien, The X-Men. And he's written for major comic titles for DC, Marvel, and Image, and it is a distinct pleasure to welcome him to the show. Michael, welcome to The Prime Direction. Great. Thanks. Nice to be here. So this podcast is... It's uh, about Star Trek fans, and I'm going to ask you some questions about your writing career and focusing a lot on your Star Trek writing. And we're going to talk about some of the projects that you're working on currently in a little while. But uh, first, I wanted to talk about your uh, your background and your Star Trek fandom. So where, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up uh, here in the New York area in, uh, in the borough of Queens. And... Um, uh, you know, if you're not familiar with uh, with New York City, you know people. You know when I say, you know, I grew up in in this in in New York City. Right. There's Manhattan. Yeah. Where the big things are, and then there's the other boroughs. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Queens. Uh, when I when I moved to when I, when I uh, moved to Queens at the age of two, um, there wasn't a whole lot there, and and there was a park right behind my house, uh, a big natural park, many many acres, and. Um, so I grew up almost almost in the woods, to tell you the truth. Uh, lots of you know kettle lakes and 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 woods and and streams. So it was uh, it was almost like growing up in the country in a way. Yeah, I've been I've been to New York once. I went a couple of years ago, and we were only there for two and a half days. So we saw all the uh, major tourist attractions. I, I think you could walk around New York for probably three weeks and not get to see everything. <laughs> Oh, easy, easy. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any siblings? I do. I have two younger sisters. Uh, they live not too far from me. Oh, okay. A little farther out on Long Island. Are they Star and... Trek fans? No. They're not? <laughs> okay. No. One of my sisters used to watch The Twilight Zone with me. Oh, yeah? But but it was it was a running joke. She would look at me and go, 
That was terrible. <laughs> and I would go, no, 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 that was that was amazing. Yeah. And uh, so it was a, between us. But uh, no, they're not not particularly Star Trek fans or science fiction fans in general. I'll tell you, my my dad was a was a big science fiction fan. Really? He was always he was always um, reading, and uh, very often he was reading science fiction, and uh, that certainly rubbed off on me. Uh, my mom my mom's very creative. Uh, she was a homemaker, but, you know, with a very creative bent. So I think that rubbed off on me also. So between the two of them, you know, I, I um, got to be where I where I to the point where I really wanted to be a science fiction writer. Uh, the problem was, of course, you know, I didn't know anybody who was a science fiction writer. There was nobody in my neighborhood who wrote science fiction. Guys did lots of things, but nobody wrote anything. And um uh, there was no writer, there was no publisher, no one even knew someone who was a, a writer or a publisher. Right. Uh, so it didn't seem like there was a- ever actually going to be an opportunity to be a writer. Um, but, uh, but, you know, it was a dream in the back of my head originally. How early in your life did Star Trek become a part of it? The earliest possible time. Yeah. Oh, the uh, yeah, the um, when uh, Star Trek came on the air in uh, 1966, I watched that episode. Uh, I, I wasn't that old, but yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I was sitting there in my in my pajamas, but uh, but I was able to sit there and, and watch that episode, and it was um, it was amazing. It was um, it, you know I've used this phrase in connection with this experience. Uh, it's a phrase from the great Gatsby. It was a commensurate with my capacity for wonder. Yeah. It was the most amazing thing I could imagine on television. If I could have designed something to watch on television, that would have been it. Yeah. So, uh, so I was happy actually that Gene Roddenberry designed it. (laughs) Uh, so were you a rabid fan from the very beginning? I was, I was, you know, I, um, I watched every possible episode. I, I, you know, no matter what anybody wanted to do, no matter where they wanted to go, they had to be in. I had to be in front of a television mm-hmm. when Star Trek was on, and uh, and I watched every episode religiously for three years. Um, but I didn't, I didn't watch the reruns very much, because I don't know. That's always been a thing of mine. I I, I seldom watch something a second time. Um, that changed a little when I had kids. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like to watch it 50 times, right. and, you know, you find yourself doing that with them. But, but of my own volition, I, I seldom watch something twice and, and never, never a third time. It's just, you know, there's so much else to watch. So I, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, um, Star Trek. I was thoroughly bedazzled by it. And uh, when I was in college and I saw other people watching reruns, I said, well, okay, that's right. I'd watch for a few minutes, but I didn't have any desire to watch uh, to watch uh, Star Trek in syndication. Did you have uh, Did you have any toys? Star Trek toys? Yeah. Um, no, because you know when I was young, there were no Star Trek toys. Not a lot. There yeah. were, you know, Star Trek. You know, was a franchise, but it was the first franchise, and, and no one knew it was a franchise until other franchises started popping up. Right. So. So no, I I never had any of the toys. Uh, lately, as an adult, I've I've gotten some of the toys as gifts. 
um, you know, a hallmark ornament or, a, or an action figure or, or something like that. But um, I even wrote a book um, accompanying uh, one of the larger action figures. Mm-hmm. It was it was part of a package, but um, uh, it was so it wasn't until I was an adult that I actually wound up with the toys. Well, we live in a time now where uh, most of the m- most of the movies that come out are comic book or science fiction movies that are related to those kinds of things, and it hasn't always been that way. So, did did you feel that uh, your love of Star Trek was something that you could be proud of when you were a kid, or were you like me that and caught some flack if you wore a Star Trek T-shirt? Hmm. Um. I. You know, I kind of straddled those two worlds when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, I, I was, you know, with, I guess I hung out with a lot with the cool kids, but I also hung out a lot with the geeks. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I felt equally comfortable in both worlds. And I was totally unashamed of, of, you know, my, my, um, uh, my dedication to, to Star Trek and, and, and things like that. It never, I never, I never hit it. I guess, I guess the, the biggest impulse to do so would be when I, when I, you know, started dating. Yeah. But, <laughs> but even then, you know, usually it turned out that, that, you know, um, the girl I was dating had a younger brother who was into comics and I would end up talking to them yeah. and they go, wow, you're so cool. You don't mind talking to my younger brother. And I said, oh yeah. It's that I don't mind talking to him, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I always found that even the bullies that were making fun of making fun of kids for liking Star Trek and Star Wars and stuff like that, those things are more mainstream than they wanted to admit. You know, so mm. even the bullies they would make fun of you for liking Star Trek, but then they were watching Star Trek too. <laughs> they were just they they would just uh, make uh, have to find something, I guess, to make fun of you about. And 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 if you were wearing a Star Trek shirt, then that's the thing that they focused on, I guess. You know, it's funny you mentioned that. It was just just the other day I was talking to someone about uh, these bullies that lived up up the block. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were they were tough kids, and everybody knew they were tough kids. They were a, a year older than I was, and uh, their their leader was a guy named Robbie. And uh, one day, I'd never talked to him or anything. Mm-hmm. And then one day, I see him approaching me, and I said, "Oh my God, I'm in for it. I don't know what's going to go on now." <laughs> and he comes over and he goes, "So I heard you like comics." I said, "Yeah." He goes, "Me too." <laughs> And the next thing I know, I'm at his house trading comics. Oh yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, you're right. You're right. Even 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 the bullies were were often uh, into that. So after the next generation, I mean, not the next generation. After the original series went off the air, did you feel like Star Trek is just a, a part of your past, or did you always maintain that same level of fandom? I know it was pro- it was about ten years between the ending of the series and the first movie. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, um, I thought Star Trek was done. Yeah. I thought it was, you know, it was done. And I, I would, um, I, you know, I was, uh, I was into comedy and, uh, comedy performing. And, and so we would do bits about Star Trek where I, I would write a humor column about Star Trek. So it was, it was always on my mind. It, it was, it stayed with me in that regard, but, 
Um, but I figured it was done. And mm. then when I, when I heard they were making a Star Trek movie, I was over the moon. You know, this is amazing. What an amazing idea. And, and people have asked me, they said, so was that, you know, did you know that that was happening? I was like, no, it had never happened in the history of the world. Yeah. You know, where they took a, a TV show and made a movie out of it. It was it was the first. So so uh, it was completely unexpected and, and completely delightful, even if it wasn't necessarily the best. <laughs> yeah. World. I was going to ask you how you actually felt about the movie after you saw it. <laughs> well, you know, it uh, it had its good points and it's not so good points. And but again, there was nothing to compare it to. Right. Yeah. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about your uh, Star Trek novels. Um You've written a lot of them. Was that a series of books that you liked to read before you started writing for them? Yeah, yeah. I, I read um, I read some of the Star Trek novels um, uh, by Howie Weinstein and Ann Crispin. Howie's still a friend of mine. Ann was before she passed away. And and so I admired those books. And, and when my agent came to me, I'd, I'd written four books for, for Warner. And... Um, uh, she came to me and she said, would you like to do uh, write a Star Trek book? I was like, oh, yeah, that'd be incredible. That'd be great. I think they were putting out like six books a year at that point. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I said, sure, terrific. I, 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 I'd be happy to. So so I came up with an outline. The editor at the time was a, a guy named Dave Stern and uh, um, who's who's a friend now. You know, uh, but but at the time he was just an editor. I didn't know him. Right. And uh, Dave, I, I gave Dave a proposal for for a, um, an original series story because because in those days that's all there was. Right. And uh, and Dave really uh, really uh, hated it. Actually, <laughs> he said this because this is not at all what I'm looking for. <laughs> and, uh, the the books that he had liked of mine that I thought were what I had to kind of emulate were, were swords and sorcery books. So the, uh, idea I had submitted was kind of, uh, it's kind of a Scotty story with a lot of, um, uh, Scottish mythology thrown in there. And he said, this is, this is not at all what I'm looking for. I want to, you know, a Star Trek story. I want it to be science fiction. So I came up with another story based, uh, it was an offshoot of, uh, what are little girls made of? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then, uh, he said, Mike, I really like this. He goes, but, but how does it end? And I said, well, you want to know how it ends? I mean, isn't that telling? He goes, yeah. you're supposed to tell Mike I'm the editor. <laughs> so I said, okay. And I, uh, I gave him the ending and he really liked the whole package and, and, uh, gave me the go ahead. And that became my first uh, Star Trek book, uh, what are little girls made? Oh, oh, no, I'm sorry. It was called double, double. The episode it was based on was what are little girls made. Right. So it kind of takes the idea of a uh, um, a Kirk android, another Kirk android being created, and 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 that's the springboard from which the story uh, from which the story proceeds. The the height of my Star Trek fandom was in when I was in high school, which was the mid '90s, early '90s. And um, I would go to the bookstore and I would buy these paperbacks. And after I'd read quite a few of them, I had a short list of authors that I tried to keep an eye out for when I went to buy whatever the, the newest books that came out. And, of course, there were authors like Peter David and uh, Diane Duane was on that list. And then 
you you were on that list as well, and you wrote Reunion, which I think was the first Star Trek Next Generation novel that I read, and it kind of kind of was about the the death of uh, Doctor Crusher's husband when he was killed under Captain Picard's uh, command. D- You've written uh, novels based on all of the properties, am I right? Except Enterprise. You didn't write it, okay. Which one? I'll I'll tell you. Go go ahead, go ahead. (laughs) Okay, well, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I've written, um, uh, I've written many original series books, a lot of next generation books, a couple of, um, a couple of Deep Space Nine books and some Voyager books. I also wrote a Voyager episode. Yeah, I think I was going to bring that up. Yeah. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> when Enterprise came around, what, what happened is I was writing a um, um, a serial that was appearing in the backs of um, all the Star Trek books that were coming out. At that point, Pocket was putting out 24 books a year, mm. 24 original novels a year. And uh, this was appearing every 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 month. There'd be two new novels, and it would have in the back. It would have Starfleet Year One, and that was a serial. And the idea was we would uh, collect it at the end of the um, uh, year and uh, put in a little more material and come out with a novel called Starfleet Year One, and that would be the first of a series of seven novels: Year One, Year Two, Year Three. Mm-hmm. And these all took place a couple hundred years before Kirk. And it was the start of Starfleet, the start of the Federation. And it was loosely based on the right stuff where you had, you know, in the right stuff, you had the pilots from the Navy and the pilots from the Air Force, I guess. And uh, in this case, you had the um, uh, what I called the butterfly catchers, the guys who who were gung ho about science. Mm-hmm. And they had the guys who thought Starfleet should be a military organization. So um, they they kind of clashed. Um, in Starfleet year one. Um, and there were six pilots and they were all vying to see who would get the command of the Daedalus, which is going to be the state of the art ship um, for the uh, highest ranking captain in the fleet. Um, so Starfleet year one, and it was very, very, um, very, very um, true to the, um, to what had been established on the screen and um, it was well received. And I'm sitting next to um, uh, uh, Rick Berman's sister, Judy, uh, who was a lovely woman, and uh, at a party. And, um, and I'd met her before, and we talked about Star Trek a little bit. And, uh, and I said, Judy, I hear there's going to be a fifth series. Now, you can tell me. <laughs> Give me a clue. Throw me a bone here. What, what's it going to be about? She looks around and she goes, well, think 200 years before Kirk. And I went, what? No, <laughs> I'm doing that. I'm doing that. You, they can't do that. I'm doing that. Right. And sure enough, Enterprise comes out. And Enterprise put the kibosh on Starfleet year two, three, four, five, six, and seven. Yeah. Even even for, for year one to come out, they had to put a disclaimer on it. It says, you know, what happens in this book has no relation to the uh, to the events in Star Trek Enterprise. So I would have had a seven book series where I could have done incredible things, except for 
enterprise. So I'm not a big fan of enterprise. <laughs> yeah, that, well, the the novels really weren't considered uh, canon anyway, were they? Um, no, they weren't considered canon, but they were respected, right? Uh, increasingly so. Um, in fact, uh, there was one occasion where um, Jerry Taylor, who was one of the executive producers of Voyager, actually took an idea from the publishing program and developed an episode from it. Um, the uh, Day of Honor episode uh, was originally a publishing idea that actually went through. We published five of them, I think, and then uh, a sixth one was I wrote uh, was an adaptation of the episode, and it was collected in a in a um, larger book, all six of them. But um, uh, the the publishing the, the publishing program was not canon. But it became close to canon eventually. Right. As the as the uh, as the shows started to come to a to an end, and then they kind of did these. The publishing companies kind of did uh, like a new, almost like a new season for some of the series. Uh, I imagine that they were a little closer to to canon then, because I know I know some of the stuff that happens in the comics is considered canon. Some of the next generation stuff that happens after Nemesis in the comics is considered to be canon now. Um, that kind of goes along with the J.J. Abrams version of Star Trek and all that kind of stuff. But Which one of those series, uh, which one of those crews did you enjoy writing about the most? Hmm. Um, it would have to be, I, I, you know... People ask me this a lot, and, and sometimes I say original series, and sometimes I say next gen, and right now I'm going to say original series. Really? Tomorrow I might say next gen. <laughs> uh, it, it's, uh, it's that close. I, I mean, I really enjoyed those two casts. Um, you know, original series for what it meant to me and, and, and how it broke the ground for this for the uh, Star Trek franchise and, and, and you know, how how moving and impressive it was and and uh um you know i encountered it as a, as a kid so so that really will never will, will always have a place in my heart um next generation is really really came about at the time when i began writing star trek and i wrote those characters a lot yeah and uh, and really grew to to love them in a different way kind of in a more of an, uh, an adult professional appreciation of them so you know i mean i have uh i have a portrait of picard looking over my shoulder you can't can't see him from where you are he's, he's that way yeah <laughs> on that wall a sober portrait of picard looking down at me yeah. <laughs> so uh, um i can't say anything unkind <laughs> uh, another thing that i've always noticed is that um star trek many times gave you the honor of adapting some of their more famous episodes into a into a novel form. I remember specifically that you wrote the adaptation for Relics, which was the episode uh, that listeners will remember. Scotty came back to the Next Generation universe in, in that episode. Uh, and in the novel, you added a lot of story that wasn't in the episode. And it really, to me, it helped to add the concept of the Dyson Sphere and how it worked and how it appeared when you were inside it and you were on the surface and all that kind of stuff. Uh, did they give you free reign to pretty much do whatever you wanted as long as you included the stuff that was actually in the episode? Mm, 
Yeah, I would say they did. But but more than that, you know, I mean, they you know, they picked me for some of these assignments because they knew they could trust me and they knew that I would I would I would I would gravitate toward what they had done rather than what I felt like Star Trek should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I when I got the assignment to to write to write relics and I got the script, um, the first thing I did is I called Ron Moore, who I had, who I had met previously he was the writer of the episode and also uh, became uh, executive producer in uh, the Star Trek uh, in um, in Deep Space Nine for Deep Space Nine. And um, and Ron was great. He was generous, as always. And um, and Ron, you know, I said, so, Ron, what did you want to put in that you couldn't? He goes, oh, Mike, he goes, if we had the budget, I would have done this and I would have done that. And I had a scene in mind where I was going to do this, yeah. and I'm taking notes. They say, "More, keep going, Ron, keep going, keep going." <laughs> so, so everything that he had wanted to put in, um, I was able to put in all those scenes. Um, and then the Dyson Sphere, uh, the adventure in, on the in the Dyson Sphere was was my idea, because you know when you adapt something, if you adapt a movie, you get about and you just translate the script into prose you get about 110 120 pages out of that Mm -hmm. and then that's obviously you're not going to publish a book like that so you're going to find another 120 30 40 pages of material to add to that um when you are uh and and uh, when i adapted all good things that was a double-sized episode so it was like a movie in that regard right adapting relics I only came up with about 55 pages yeah. when I translated the script. So I had a lot of material. There was a lot of material I had to add, and I had to find a way to do that. So calling Ron was was one option, and then uh, the Dyson Sphere adventure was another. And eventually it, it came together and, and became a full-sized book. But that's part of when you adapt a, a movie for for uh, for into a book. That's part of the the task is to um, to add a lot of material. And you, like you, you you mentioned that you wrote the novelization for All Good Things, and at that point you had written a lot of uh, a lot of pages using these uh, using these characters, and that was their final episode. I imagine that was quite an honor. How'd you how'd you feel writing that novel? It was great. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, it was terrific. Uh, the, the, on the downside, I only had 15 days to do it. <laughs> Get me the, the script and said, "Here, write a you know 280-page book." Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I explained to my family, you know, you won't see me for a couple of weeks. You know, if if you do see me, just you know, just say hi and step away. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, that was fantastic. It was hard. It was hard to adapt because it was such a um, it was such a linear story mm-hmm. back and forth. That, yeah. Yeah. You couldn't really get in between some of those scenes. So the ones w- that you could get in between, I wedged in, you know, the last, the resolution of this thread, the resolution of that thread, the resolution of Wesley and the traveler, the web resolution of, um, of, uh, every, thing that had gone the least bit unresolved in uh, you know the resolution of the maquis the resolution of everything i could think of and i put that in there in the uh, typically 
in the earlier parts of the book mm-hmm. because later parts it just has this momentum and you just can't yeah. interrupt it uh, you know with a, a character moment so um it was great because i was able to take all these loose threads and tie them together uh but it was tough as well because i was under the gun right and another honor that you were given was to write uh death in winter which is the beginning of the series of books for TNG that takes place after Nemesis. So it's kind of like you're starting the continuation of the, of the series. Uh, did you have more freedom writing that book since they knew that there wasn't going to be any more on screen adventures for those characters? Hmm. Did, um, I had, I would say a little less freedom, but you know, freedom is, is, <laughs> is not always a good thing. <laughs> you know, I, I like, you know, one of the reasons I've written so many Star Trek books is I, I like limitations. I like walls to bounce off of. I like um, established things that I can play for irony or humor or, you know, um, I don't have to establish everything. It's already established. I like those things. So freedom is not not always um, not always what you're looking for as a writer. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Yeah. Um, and uh, in this case, I knew that I had to establish certain things. I had to take, I had to start here and end here. And I knew where the, the next book was going. The, the trick there was, uh, there's a character, I won't mention who it is, but, but, um, her silhouette is on the book and it does say death in winter. So the implication is that that character may die. Right. Um, uh, I got, when, when we kind of leaked out that a character would die and um, leaked out maybe, oh, who it might be, it, there, I, I, got, I got threats. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's like, who are you to kill that person? Are you kidding? That's my favorite character. Yeah. <laughs> and and you know, in the book, that character may or may not die. But, but I couldn't go out. I couldn't come out and say, no, not going to happen. Don't worry. Because that book was going to come out. Nobody could know how it was going to end. Right. Yeah. Um, so people were, were, um, suffice it to say, I wasn't, uh, nobody killed me, uh, <laughs> but which was the outcome I was hoping for. And, uh, um, but that was, that was an interesting, uh, an interesting, um, adventure in publishing. <laughs> on a, on a geeky note, uh, you wrote a novel that I had a lot of fun reading a, a few years ago, which was Planet X. Of course. <laughs> and uh, it's the crossover of the next generation with the X-Men. Can you tell me how that novel came about? Yeah, John Ordover, who was the um, the editor, uh, the lead editor at, in the Star Trek publishing program at the time, um, knew that Marvel was getting the license for the comics. Uh, for the Star Trek comics. DC had had it for many years, yeah. and now Marvel was going to get it. And so there was a brief window of opportunity there. Um, because there was already a, a business relationship between Marvel and um, Paramount, who owned the rights at the time, John said, hey, you know, we're already talking, we're already doing things on the comic front. Why don't we come out with a novel that crosses over Star Trek and the X-Men. And, and and it could only have been done at this time when there was already a relationship there mm-hmm. and the licenses were, were, you know, that had already been worked out that, you know, um, 
uh, it could it could be done. And uh, he suggested it, and it was well received. And so, in fact, um, I was able to write Planet X. Yeah. And uh, Planet X, it's it's weird. It's it, it's a weird book, but it's a lot of fun. I think it was certainly a lot of fun to write. Um, you know, mixing like elements in um, in the original in the uh, Next Generation and in um, uh, the X Men. Uh, you know, I have so I have um, Jordy um, t- talking to Nightcrawler, who's a teleporter. Mm-hmm. And I uh, have Worf in the holodeck with Wolverine and uh, um, Picard. You know, this is before Patrick Stewart <coughs> was announced as the guy who would play Professor X. Right. I have Captain Picard uh, meeting Professor X in the holodeck. And, you know, they remark on how, you know, gee, we're not we don't look <laughs> all that dissimilar. Do we? Right. <laughs> um there's a, then there's a funny moment where um, a transporter operator, operator named B.G. Robinson is talking to Angel. Um, and um, uh, B.G. Robinson um, was played um, by, oh, I'm having a mental block, ah, the woman who played uh, Lois Lane in Lois and Clark. Oh, uh, ter- Terry. Not, not Terry. Yeah, Terry Hatcher. Thank you. God, you saved me. Okay. <laughs> I almost so said Terry, Terry Farrell. That's not right either. So. Right? Yeah. So Terry Hatcher played B.G. Robinson on the episode The Outrageous Akona. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I have B.G. Robinson in the book, and she looks at Angel, and she goes, wow. She goes, don't forget, this is the woman who played Lois Lane. She goes, wow, I can't believe a man can fly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So there were lots, you know. I have I have Q hanging out at the end of the book with the Watcher. Right. Um, there's just there's just so many fun things to do in that book, and I think I did them all. I, so, I remember yeah, that was, I remember yeah. seeing that in the store, and and they had uh, they had done something in the comics that was the original series meets the X Men uh, not long before that, but. Um, but I had not heard that the novel was so. When I saw that novel and I saw the cover, I was like, "What? Really? No, what?" <laughs> so I had to pick it up. I had to read it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and I believe I've, I've, I believe I've still got it put up here somewhere. But um, Star Trek is uh, absolutely a science fiction show. But inside of that genre, it has a lot of different kinds of episodes. You know, there's the the planetary discovery episodes. There's the the time travel episodes, courtroom dramas. Klingon and Ferengi-centric episodes. What kind of Star Trek episodes do you find yourself liking the most? Um, I think I like them all, and I think I um, have probably used them all, every, every <laughs> one of those structures. But, but I think um, they, they always... I, I like the interplay of ideas. And sometimes that's best expressed in the courtroom drama where, you know, for instance, I had um, data was captured by a society that 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 believed what Spock had once said, you know, that the 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 needs of the many are greater than the needs of the one. But for them, it was a simple matter of math. That's all that counted. Right. And um, and so he had to kind of show them another another way of looking at things. in Shadows on the Sun, where um, McCoy um, 
who who obviously you know is is all about saving lives um, is pitted against uh, a society where of assassins where it's an honorable thing to take a life and and so he has a dialogue with with an assassin who, whose life he's trying to save mm-hmm. and uh, um, that interplay of ideas is what makes makes it exciting for me it's not so much you know everybody likes a good phaser fight hey yeah you know? <laughs> but but it's that interplay of ideas i mean i had uh um forget it was i forget which book it was but um uh neelix was was it Neelix? No, it was someone else. But but you know there was a a guy who had a a um, he had a way to save a whole bunch of lives, but he had discovered this by doing what it, the equivalent of uh, what in our world would have been Nazi research. Oh yeah. And now one of the people whose relatives he performed that research on stood to survive through what that research had yielded right but 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 didn't want to didn't want to don't I, you can't save me with the the horrible things that you did to my people yeah that that so, was neelix i remember yeah yeah so so it's really um i love that interplay of ideas that's what's exciting regardless of which kind of story it is yeah. well uh you wrote resistance which was a voyager episode and um it was the episode where uh, Janeway's trying to rescue Tuvok and Balana, and she meets an old man that thinks that she's his daughter. It was a remarkable episode. How, how did it feel to somebody that has written lots and lots of Star Trek stories to actually see these characters play out one of your stories on screen? It was an out-of-body experience. Yeah. It was, it was amazing. I have to tell you, you know, everybody's got a, hor- a Hollywood horror story. Oh, they took my my beautiful baby and they destroyed it and they made it into something cheap and tawdry and <laughs> oh, for Hollywood again. But I, I I don't have that. I was I was you know I, I wrote the story with uh, Kevin Ryan, and we were treated nothing but great and with respect and and, and we were included every step of the way and. Um, the um, God help me, I forget the name of the lady who who um, uh, rewrote the story for us. Mm-hmm. Um, but she did an amazing job, and and just just it just wrung out every last bit of pathos out of that story. Um, the original idea was um, Janeway plays Dulcinea to a Quezon Don Quixote. Okay. Right. Yeah. The, it was the Man of La Mancha story, and um, um, that was the pitch. And we, we made the pitch to Jerry Taylor, one of the executive producers, and um, um, she liked it, and she said, let me take it to the, to the rest of the staff and see what they think, but I like it. And so we were keeping our fingers crossed, and um, um, we, we heard the next morning from Jerry, and she said, I, I gave it to the staff. They loved it. But I have to tell you, after we all said, yes, let's buy it, she goes, maybe an hour later, we got another pitch 
and it was substantially the same pitch. <laughs> so if you had pitched 24 hours later, yeah. we would have had to buy their pitch instead of yours. <laughs> That's how precarious it was. Right. Um, in the meantime, uh, it was a great it was a great experience. It was wonderful. You know, they, if anything, they improved what we had written, and like I say, wrung every last little bit of pathos out of it. The we had originally thought of somebody like Brian Dennehy, uh, a big kind of gruff looking guy to play the um, the kind of addled um, ex revolutionary. Right. Uh, and they picked Joel Gray, and I was like, hmm. Joel Gray, he was extraordinary. Yeah. He was just amazing in that role. Uh, frankly, I, I've never seen him in anything, in anything where he where he was better. Yeah, you know, he was he, it was an amazing thing, and I guess he was kind of friendly um, with uh, with a couple of members of the cast, and so they he brought out the best in them. Mm -hmm. and, um, it was a wonderful experience. It was a wonderful. I, I mean, you know, every time I see it, I see other things in it. And I can't remember if they were things I intended or <laughs> added to make it even better. Right. So uh, it was it was a great experience, and 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 I'm grateful forever that you know that I was able to make a, a small mark kind and contribution to the Star Trek legacy. How do you feel about the uh, the Kelvin timeline movies, the J.J. Abrams universe? Are you happy with them, or do you wish that they'd have just left left star trek alone or mm. well um i'm not i'm not particularly happy with them especially the first two you know it was sort of like well we're gonna make a star trek movie here and we're not really all that concerned about anything that's been established we're gonna kind of run roughshod mm -hmm. we're gonna do what we feel like doing and so they did and 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 I thought it was uh, you know I felt a little violated to tell you the truth. <laughs> there are people who say you know well come on it's Star Trek let's as long as it's a good story what's the difference? I, I far, frankly I didn't think it was a good story but even if it had been I'd have felt a little like no I like my I like my fantasy worlds seamless. Right. I don't want to be saying wait a second, that can't be, that's stupid, that's ridiculous, <laughs> that clashes with that thing that's been established. Um, so I didn't particularly like the first two. I, I like the third one. I like the third one. It it um, it addressed a lot of what I what I didn't like about the first two, and even though it kind of, you know, it kind of stretched a little too far in terms of, you know, like you know, uh, uh, um, in terms of bringing in the Leonard Nimoy Spock at the end, yeah. and you know all that. Even then, I, I thought it was a good movie, and I thought it it was true to Star Trek. So um, I was able to overlook the the kind of JJ ness of it. Yeah, that, that's what I hear a lot talking with people, especially people that I talk to on this show, that the first two movies are Star Trek movies written by somebody that didn't really watch a lot of Star Trek. And uh, Simon Pegg got involved in the script writing in the third one, and he's a Star Trek fan, so it felt a little more like the Star Trek that we remember, so... I, yeah. I I agree with 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 everything that you've just said, but uh, how are, are you excited about um, Star Trek Discovery? I I don't know a whole lot about it, but I am very excited about it. Yeah. I, I think 
I really think that, uh, and I, I, you know, I know that there was a little problem recently where Brian Fuller was, uh, left the show and, and I don't know what that's about, but, um, uh, I, I am nonetheless very excited about discovery. I, I, I can't wait to see it and I'll be, I'll be plunking down my few bits to, to pay as much yeah. as much sounds absurd to pay to see Star Trek. Yeah. I, the, the writers that are, that are on staff, even with Brian's uh, departure, they have some great writers on staff, and, and I, I trust them, and, and I think they'll do a great job. Yeah, I hear a lot of people complaining about the fact that you're going to have to pay for this CBS All Access to watch it, but it's really it, it's not that much to spend and if you're like me and you love star trek you know it's a new star trek show so i'll i would pay more than that <laughs> to see yeah, I, mean, yeah. I spent i spent 60 dollars to take my family to see star trek beyond last summer you know <laughs> between the pop the popcorn and the 3d and all that kind of stuff you know it's expensive so um and of course uh, star trek is not the only property that you've written novels for um and stories uh as i said before you wrote for alien uh, X-Men, you've got a couple of titles based on Lois and Clark, and of course you've written tons of stories for comic books More than, but more than half of your titles are Star Trek what is it about Star Trek that you think makes you want to come back and keep writing more stories for it? Two things, I think, I think one is it's very optimistic mm -hmm. I, I, I like that, I, you know I I know that you know the trend really going back maybe to 1985 or so. The trend in in comics, the trend in in books has been to and in TV has been to get darker and darker and darker, and um, and you know and that's got its place. But but I really like the optimism. There's something great about you know saying we will survive. We will get to be better than we are. Uh, I, I like that, and the other thing is the inclusion. It's it's very inclusive, and 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 you know it's no accident that when you go to a Star Trek convention, you see all kinds of people, and right. you see people with disabilities, and you say, "Thank God these people feel included, and why shouldn't they?" Mm -hmm. Right? That a lot of that is because of Star Trek. I think you know it's um, it it was inclusive from the beginning, and and it was one of the things that. Gene Roddenberry got absolutely right. Mm -hmm. Make it inclusive. It, who, what kind of future would exclude people? So, um, so those two things are, are, I think, what what really appealed to me. Um, and you don't see those things together in in any other in any other franchise. So I like that. And of course, you know, the original series, you know, it was colorful. It was it was well written. It was it was interpersonal conflict the characters really you could tell the characters really loved each other mm -hmm. and uh and that's uh you know that's something that that's always appealing what are you working on right now well uh a couple of things you know on one hand i have a um uh, a stake in a uh uh publishing concern uh called crazy eight press uh where i and and six other uh writers have gotten together so there's seven of us and we formed Crazy Eight Press, and you're probably thinking, "Well, seven writers, Crazy Eight, <laughs> yeah, play. that's that's the crazy part. right." <laughs> so uh, we what we do is in Crazy Eight Press is we 
we write the things we always wanted to write. Okay. Uh, some years ago, I, I um, said to an editor at, at Delray Books, I said, you know, I want to write this um, this 21st century Aztec Empire murder mystery. And she went, wow, that sounds great. I really want to read that. She went, I can't buy that. Can you imagine me telling a bookstore buyer, you know, at Barnes & Noble or something? Yeah, it's a 21st century Aztec Empire murder mystery. You know, their head would explode. She goes, I can't do that. But she goes, but if you publish it, I want to read it. <laughs> so, uh, so that's the type of thing. These are our, our purest visions, uh, the things that we always wanted to, to write and, and the things that we like to read. So the, the things that we come out with from Crazy 8 Press um, are really are really the things that the things that we love and the things that for one reason or another traditional publishing couldn't couldn't um, embrace um, on the comic side um, I'm working on a um, a brand new comic called Empty Space and it's a cross I guess you'd say it's kind of a cross between Star Trek and Lost okay and it's got Star Trek elements. There's a star fleet, if you will, and uh, it adventures out in space and hostile species. <clears throat> but it's not exactly like Star Trek. And it's it's got elements that will keep you coming back and coming back and coming back as we peel back one layer of the onion. Mm -hmm the other and you realize the thing you thought you were reading in issue one is not what you're reading by the time you get to issue five <laughs> so um um it's different and and yet it's similar enough to the things that i've that i've been uh, known for that i think uh, i think it, people will be attracted to it our our plan is to have um uh, the the artist the line uh the um, line artist is a pencil artist and inker is a guy named Caio Cacao. He's a um, Brazilian guy and he's been doing my covers, my book covers. And, and he, he loves comics and that's really his first love. So he's been, uh, he's, he's doing the line art. Um, he's a wonderful cover um, that he's rendered for me. And um, uh, the, the idea is to come out on comiXology for four issues okay. and then collect that as a graphic novel, kickstart it, put it out there in the comic stores, do four more issues with comiXology, collect those in a graphic novel and so on every four issues, you know, until on, you know, for as long as people will tolerate us. <laughs> um, do you, is all that, is all that on your, uh, on your website? Um, I think, um, yes, I think that is on our, is on my website. Uh, there's the crazy eight press website where you can find out more about the, the books and, uh, to find out more about, um, um, create, uh, about empty space. Yeah. You can go to my website, which is michaeljanfriedman.net. Uh, I believe there's something up there now and there will be more and more as time goes on so people can follow that uh also they can follow me on facebook and uh and on twitter okay and i'll put links to your website and, and the crazy eight website on my website when the when the show goes up but 
Um, do you think that there's any future uh, Star Trek novels still inside you? You know, it's funny. It's funny. I was at a um, 50th anniversary convention at the Javits Center here in New York, um, and I think it's been 12 years since I wrote a Star Trek book. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, at the time that I stopped, I just felt like, you know, I had done everything I really set out to do with Star Trek, at least for that moment. And that, you know, there was no point in just hanging on, you know, how some baseball players are, <laughs> yeah. hang on and hang on. I said, like, I don't want to be that guy. So, so, um, so I kind of stepped aside and made room for other people, but I was at a convention recently with, um, uh, one, a couple of the editors at, um, um, at, uh, pocket books and they encouraged me to, to do it again. And, and, you know, being on these panels, I was on a few panels at the convention and being on these panels and seeing people I knew and meeting people, I knew people, I really said, you know what? I think it's time. I think it's time for me to get back in the saddle and so uh, I'll be submitting a proposal soon, and hopefully that'll be the beginning of my re-entry. Well, I can tell you just from a Star Trek fan like myself, uh, I, I go and watch the J.J. Uh, Abrams movies. I'm looking forward to Star Trek Discovery, but I always want to go back and, and revisit the the old Prime Universe. I'm reading uh, Death in Winter right now. I haven't finished it yet. And uh, like I said, I've got several of your books on the show. You and you and Peter David are pretty much my uh, my two go my go to Star Trek guys when it comes to novels. So, so thank you. Um, but that's uh, I guess that's pretty much going to do it for this episode. I want to thank my guest uh, Michael Jam Friedman. And uh, as he said, you can find you can find him on Facebook and Twitter. And I will put up uh, links to his website on CosmicPotato.com when the episode goes up. But uh, Michael, thank you very much for being on the Prime Direction. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here with you.